continuing our journey in this second episode of the podcast series from gut to glory digesting the potential of gut hormones in type 2 diabetes management we will delve further into the role of incretin hormones and their role in glucose regulation and type 2 diabetes again thank you to michael and priya for joining me today for this discussion with emj So Michael, in episode one, we discussed some of those key gut hormones involved in glucose regulation. I'm intrigued to learn a lot more and discuss more on the importance of those incretin hormones that you mentioned. So to start off, could you just talk me through, remind the audience, what are those incretin hormones and how do they regulate metabolism? So basically, the definition of an incretin hormone is a peptide hormone secreted from the gut after meals through nutrient stimulation. So that means you have low plasma concentrations in the fasting state, high concentrations after eating, and they should have the ability at the concentrations that are reached after meals to have an influence on insulin secretion. And basically they stimulate insulin output in a very much glucose dependent manner. That means If the glucose is low, and we have looked at this, so below a plasma glucose concentration of 66 milligrams per deciliter, there is zero stimulation of insulin secretion. And the higher the glucose concentration is, the greater the impact of incretin hormones on pancreatic insulin output is. Uh, So that means they have a very important postprandial action, mainly, And uh, experiments with specific uh, receptor antagonists that inhibit the action of incretin hormones show if you use them, glucose goes up and insulin output goes down. And this is exactly what happens when you develop diabetes. And in subjects with type 2 diabetes, even with early type 2 diabetes, so if you use the diagnostic criteria, those who have just a fasting glucose above 126 milligrams per deciliter, they lose their incretin effect. And uh, that means they do no longer respond in particular to GIP. Uh, It is very much different with GLP-1, and that is a surprise because basically we thought the mechanism of stimulating insulin secretion is pretty much the same. It's all through specific receptors coupled to adenylate cyclase producing cyclic AMP. It works if you do it through GLP-1. It doesn't work in the acute experiment if you try GIP. And that has been a very big disappointment because when GIP was discovered around 1970 in Canada, by the way, uh, people thought maybe this is a new therapeutic for type uh, 2 diabetes. And uh, this hope had to be given up in the 1980s when several people showed it doesn't work in patients with type 2 diabetes. But the opposite is true for GLP-1. So the uh, main therapeutic uh, potential we see in GLP-1. And and what do we believe is the reason for that disparity? What's the characteristics that maybe we that, that, that one is more impactful than the other yeah so basically there are two different uh, theories which are not mutually exclusive 
the, the simple one just says an oral glucose load is a strong stimulus because it involves the gut hormones, the incretins. An intravenous glucose load, which just raises glucose to the same levels, is a rather weak stimulus for insulin secretion. And if you have weak beta cells, maybe a reduced number of beta cells, maybe they can secrete as much insulin as is necessary to compensate for the weak stimulus, but they cannot secrete more with the strong stimulus. Uh, however, it is not ruled out that perhaps the uh, expression of GIP receptors is also changed with uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, but it's very difficult to study this. We are, we are currently doing such a study because it's very, very difficult to get pancreas material to, to do these examinations in subjects with type 2 diabetes. So incretin hormones like GIP and GLP-1, they are secreted after nutrient intake. It can be through carbohydrate, protein, or fat. Uh, that means in the fasting state, we have low concentrations of GIP and GLP-1. And after a mixed meal, for example, we have relatively high concentrations. And these concentrations are high enough to impact on insulin secretion. The condition is that glucose is high uh, because the action on insulin secretion is very much glucose dependent, which is a safeguard against hypoglycemia. So when the glucose falls, uh, the incretin hormones, even if they have very high concentrations, they stop working on insulin secretion. Uh, and so typically, they can be very potent stimulators of insulin secretion, but they never produce hypoglycemia. And that is also true for the drugs that have been developed based on the properties of GLP-1 uh, mainly. So they stimulate insulin secretion, TLP1 also suppresses glucagon. They slow gastric emptying, which means there is less glucose leaving the stomach to get absorbed. That also means you have uh, less postprandial rises in uh, glycemia. And this all happens in healthy subjects. And if you use an antagonist for GIP, for example, then the glucose levels will go up after an oral glucose load or a mixed meal, and the insulin output will be lower. So they have a predominantly postprandial action, and they very much impact on glucose concentrations. Uh, and uh, the, the very special development when you develop type 2 diabetes is once you have established the diagnosis, GLP does no longer work that way, whereas GLP-1 is still active, especially if you use higher concentrations. So typically, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are used at supra-physiological concentrations, and they have the ability to very much impact on glucose concentrations in type 2 diabetic patients. And do we have any understanding of why there may be that disparity once we move into um, individuals with metabolic conditions like diabetes um, between the GLP-1 and the GIP? 
So it could just be a failure of beta cells to uh, respond appropriately, but it could also be that there are specific deficits in the expression of GIP receptors. So there are some animal models that suggest that this may be the case, but there are also human data that don't look that way. So again, this is a question for future research and it cannot be finally answered at this moment in time. Thank you. And if I could come to you, Priya, um, Michael mentioned about postprandial effects and those sorts of things. Do you think that dietary interventions could impact the production or effectiveness of these incretin hormones? Um, what's, what are your thoughts on that? So as uh, Michael uh, discussed before, um, uh, any ingestion of any meal will lead to rapid and increased levels of the incretin hormones. And that starts within five minutes and it peaks after 30 to 45 minutes. So um, all of the macronutrients as well, whether it be protein or fat or carbs, they all stimulate GIP and GLP-1. No synergism when you added them together with mixed meals, etc. But there is data supporting that protein loads 30 minutes before the meal can augment the GIP and GLP response to the meals. Now, this is data that's been done in very um, small groups of people. And uh, the clinical effectiveness of this as a strategy long term to preserve glucose homeostasis cannot be inferred based on these studies. Um, it is interesting, though, that there are some diurnal variations in incretin hormones such that you get a greater uh, response to an identical meal given in the morning versus the afternoon. Um, but again, you know, I think the, the best approach is to not is to sort of adopt dietary habits to maintain a healthy weight, um, to reduce that pancreatic stress in the first place. I think once you have diabetes, the dietary interventions are less effective than they are before you develop diabetes. I'm not sure if Michael has anything to add to that uh, in terms of augmenting that incretin response. Well, one approach that has been used over the years is inhibiting an enzyme, a protease, that degrades and inactivates incretin hormones, and that is dipeptidyl peptidase number four, usually abbreviated as DPP4. And there are DPP4 inhibitors, uh, which also prove how important incretin hormones are, because basically it is not those DPP-4 inhibitors that lower glucose, but it is the higher concentrations that are maintained uh, in, in terms of GIP and GLP-1 concentrations. Uh, and and uh, I think it, it speaks in favor of the importance, even the therapeutic importance of, uh, of, of incretin hormones, that it is possible to, to achieve those effects on plasma glucose, HbA1c, and the like. That, that's really interesting. And I don't know if we touched on um, lipids at all and whether there's a role with lipid and lipoproteins. I think uh, we are talking about physiology now. Uh, and and within the variations in, in uh, 
incretin hormone concentrations, I, I would not know uh, that there is a, a, a real uh, impact on, on lipid levels. That changes when you use uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists. So you use them for the therapy because the equivalent concentrations are much higher than, and they have really been shown to, uh, to improve lipid profiles. Yeah. And in particular, the triglycerides, which seem to be more strongly linked to, um, to glucose metabolism than LDL per se. So, so definitely that uh, those triglycerides and, and HDL can be impacted by GLP-1 um, agonists, but mostly through their effect on insulin resistance and glucose metabolism. Having said that, that still does improve the favorability of your lipid profile. That's interesting. So do you feel that the N-cretins have a role then, are a key role player in the pathophysiology of diabetes and these factors? What do you think, Priya, on this? Absolutely. I think we've already spoken about the effect that they have on glucose homeostasis. Um, but I think what's very compelling about these drugs is they've changed how we manage diabetes. Uh, before we had incretin therapies, we would control glycemia and then try to also address the complications of diabetes, the long-term complications. So glycemia is very strongly linked with the microvascular complications, but we know that diabetes is associated with a much higher risk of macrovascular disease, stroke and cardiovascular disease, renal dysfunction. Um, now we have a group of agents that not only improve glycemia, but also change the landscape of long-term um, macrovascular disease. So they also reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. They're associated with improved um, renal outcomes. How exactly um, the GLP-1 agonists uh, improve cardiovascular disease in MACE is thought to be through more of an atherosclerotic mechanism. But I think that's huge because um, so now we, we have drugs that, not just that don't just treat A1C and glycemia, but they also help protect organs and that we, we want to protect over the, the course of a person's lifespan. I think that leads on nicely to thinking about how we can apply this knowledge then to improve patient care. Um, Michael, first, if I could come to you, what are the approaches that we can use to manage diabetes and metabolic disorders? So GLP-1 in early experiments uh, performed in the early 1990s was shown to reduce glucose concentrations, even normalized glucose concentrations in patients with type 2 diabetes. Uh, and later we learned it also reduces body weight and has beneficial influence on uh, blood pressure and lipids and the cardiovascular studies. Uh, so it was pretty evident that there is a therapeutic potential. The problem was GLP-1 has a half-life of one and a half minutes, and you needed a continuous intravenous infusion. So uh, what was clear, it will, will work, but we need compounds that uh, can be reasonably administered to patients, and these uh, 
were the GLP-1 receptor agonists. The initial ones had to be injected twice daily and didn't even cover the 24-hour period. Uh, now we have agents that have a half-life of like five, six, seven days and can be uh, injected once a week. Uh, but basically, it's a therapy that is born uh, based on the, the physiological actions uh, and properties of the gut hormone GLP-1. Thank you so much. Um, that's really useful. And I think that really, well, nicely summarises today's episode. Thank you so much to Professor Nuak and Dr. Manju for sharing their valuable insights with us today. Um, they've shared a deeper understanding on diabetes and endocrinology through the incretin hormones and their role in glucose regulation and their involvement in type 2 diabetes management. So thank you both for that. Um, this was our part of a podcast series on From Gut to Glory, Digesting the Potential of Gut Hormones in type 2 diabetes management. If you enjoyed this episode of the EMJ podcast, this is the second of a four-part series that can be accessed through your preferred podcast platform or by visiting emjreviews.com. So in the next episode, we will explore further the clinical benefits and therapeutic approaches for managing type 2 diabetes. So until next time, take care and goodbye for now. <laughs>